recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. We've made it to episode 48 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and he's online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. You can also get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So here we are, Ewan. Another week has has come and gone. What's happening? Oh, well, I I know we were joking about this a couple of weeks ago, Cam, but let me tell you about the weather. (laughs) Because it's beautiful here. Finally, finally, we had uh, like a gorgeous sunny weekend and it was warm and you could kind of get out for a nice walk. It was, you know, it's a really, really funny thing in the city of Toronto. And this happens every year, sort of the first weekend day that you get that's even remotely warm and by remotely i mean it was like 12 or 13 degrees so you know we're not we're not talking anything crazy nothing like what you typically get in in your neck of the woods cam but nevertheless that means that without doubt you have people wandering around in shorts and t-shirts it goes magically from oh it was winter yesterday and now it's summer even though it's only 13 degrees but uh, it was it was lovely and and it was a really nice change. Well, it's the opposite here now uh, because I, like I'm just looking out the window again. It's morning Monday morning when I'm taping in Hong Kong and it's quite gray out there. It looks like a storm approaching actually, but there's another storm that is kind of moving away and that's COVID again. And you know, you and I got tested a week ago. And it's the uh, first time I'd ever done a COVID nineteen test. It was really great. Right. Kind of interesting. And even even the uh, the woman who sort of administered the test said, you know, have you done this before? And I said, no. And she was kind of shocked. She said, you're probably the only person in the entire world who hasn't done this yet. <laughs> She's probably right, Cam. She's probably right. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite, 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 quite funny. But anyway, yeah, it was quite simple. I mean, uh, you know, we had a, a family member sort of exposed to somebody who, you know, was positive, positive with the uh, with the virus. It turned out last week, about middle of the week. That um, COVID nineteen was found in in the sewage system of our building, and I know the city's been testing this. Apparently, it's not very accurate. Like it's really kind of hard to pinpoint exactly where um, that came from. But it's a cluster of buildings, and so all of us had to do a second sort of mandatory test. Um, and so I'm actually waiting for that result to come back. Should be fine. But uh, yeah, I've finally got into sort of the whole COVID apparatus, the system. You know, it's it's really smooth. I, I was really impressed. Um, they've set up these testing facilities sort of in school gymnasiums and other and other uh, spots around the city and public public buildings. And it's a real fast registration test and out and uh, they'll send you a text message with your with your result. It's really, really fast. So what is this whole I mean, they found sewage in the building thing. Like, does that mean that everybody in your building is quarantined? I mean, are you still able to, to go out? What what's the deal there? So they, they found the traces of the virus in the sewage system. And so what happens is, is within a three-day period, everyone in the building has to go get tested. So if you want to just go get tested for COVID in Hong Kong, you can. And it's about 30 bucks US 
to, to do that test. But if you're part of a mandatory group where the government is sending you to be tested, that's free. And so that's basically what we did. You know, we went into the facility and they said, you know, where do you live? And I said where we lived and, you know, they could see, okay, yeah, that's mandatory. So, you know, just right over here, please. And, uh, and we did the test. So yeah, I am, I am, um, I was a bit nervous after the first one, but it should be fine on the second one. You know, like we were up in near a hundred cases a day again for four or five days and now it's back down. I was eight yesterday. So they really nipped this one in the bud quickly. This, uh, last wave. Well, good. I'm not going to tell you what's going on here in that regard because uh, our 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 numbers aren't nearly as as promising as that. So perhaps we should just move on to well, greener pastures. Cam. I'm, I'm going to mention one more thing on this. I could not believe some of the videos I saw last week from Florida because the famed spring break is underway. And I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of people um, on the streets uh, in Miami Beach. It's really, really insane. No masks or very few masks. And um, I, I, I can't, I just can't believe that that's still happening in the middle of a pandemic, even though like, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people in the US have been vaccinated already. But but that just seems so out of line still. Well, yeah, especially after the whole the whole fiasco with this exact same scenario last year. Remember, remember all the footage of people doing exactly the same thing um, at spring break last year. Um, yeah. And we've got it all anyway, all over again. That's that's great. It's good to see that people are are learning from their history, Cam. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Take it away, Ewan. I wanted to talk about workplace spyware this wow. week, Cam. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I read a, a crazy article in Wirecutter on this issue, which we'll, we'll link to the show notes. Um, and it was a bit of an eye-opener. I mean, I thought I had some understanding and some familiarity with uh, some of some of the tools that are out there, but clearly, you know, I was like tip of the iceberg stuff because um, in peeling back some of the layers um, of what's discussed in this article, it it's wow, it's uh, it's crazy, it's crazy out yeah. there what's going on. I'm aware of this as a kind of burgeoning area of software and tech, and I mean, it's been around a long time, but obviously the tools have advanced a lot. But I, but I'm not intimately familiar with them. So you know, what did you what did you find in your in your reading and your research on it? Well, I mean, just just the scope, the scope of the tools in terms of what's available, right? So things like taking screenshots of employee screens, making video recordings. And that means remotely, Op- right? Not, not. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Rest assured. This is all remote. Um, making video recordings, offering live video feeds, um, you know, VoIP call spying, GPS tracking, keystroke monitoring, general data mining. I mean, you name it, Cam. Um, wow. It's, it's out there and it's available. And what's really crazy is of course that there aren't really any platforms that we typically work from that are that are safe, right? So I mean, whether you're working on Slack or Google Workspace, 365 Teams, I mean, you you name it. There's a way for employers to store, search, and monitor 
um, your data and online activity if they're inclined to do so. Yeah, the first time I came across this in any sort of serious way recently was uh, um, sort of on this software website where you know I can purchase some productivity software from time to time to help out on certain certain tasks, and um, they unveiled kind of a tool to you know basically a co-working tool for for staff and and management to connect and discuss projects and things like that and um in the comments it was one after another of yeah but can we monitor can we screen record can we monitor their screens can we record their screens it was one after another after another and they kept saying no this is not what we believe in and these are not our values no and they had to keep answering this question and i thought is this that common like is this like these people are all asking for this and it really was kind of a wake-up call. I, I didn't realize it was that well-used or expected. Yeah, well, what, one one article that I read, they, they interviewed a, a, a CEO named Sam Nafisi. He's the CEO of Protoscore, and they're a company that monitors employee productivity. And he said that that since the onset of the pandemic, that interest from prospective customers, and of course, by customers, he means employers, he said is up 600%. I mean, 600%. That's crazy. Um, You know, and and I mean, again, this is just really sort of brave new world stuff, Cam, because I mean, you know, years ago, I always sort of abided by this general principle that, you know, I would, I would tell clients, I would tell employees really, really simple rule that, you know, if you're sitting in front of your computer and you're writing or circulating something, if you couldn't have your boss sitting next to you reading along, then you probably shouldn't be drafting it, circulating it, sending it, disseminating it, you name it. Um, you know, and I understand that's sort of a rather high threshold, but it's also just a safe way to make sure that you're not going to get yourself in, into trouble. But I mean, this is, I mean, this is next level kind of stuff, right? It's not simply a matter of your email. It's it's the productivity tracking as well, right? Um, how long are you spending in front of your computer? When do you get up? How frequently do you get up? Um, I mean, that, that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, here's one of the things that I think is really sort of problematic about that, Cam, is, you know, you can measure quantitative data. But I mean, what about the qualitative Right. I mean, how does productivity software measure the quality of the work that you're doing? I'm thinking, you know, specifically, for example, if you're dealing with client relations or something, you're on the phone a lot. Um, you know, how do you value the productivity of the quality of that call that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the amount of time you've spent on the phone or the frequency of calls that you've had? Right. Um I'm I'm at a loss as to sort of how you can try and and balance those two those two things. Well, I mean, I think you know if the company is recording your your phone calls and your uh, your your web browsing, I think they can decide whether it was qual- quality or not. Um, I mean, that's kind of up to them if they've got that data. But I want to I want to stress two different things here because I feel like you know on the one hand there are companies that are heavily regulated. They're in heavily regulated sectors. And where they need to store information. So financial services is famous for that. I guess law as well. Where, you know, you, I mean, even when I worked at the exchange, obviously they're going to be, you know, keeping email records for many years. And, you know, we used Symphony, which is, you know, product sort of like Slack for, for, for financial services companies. 
And that also kept chat records, but that was out of a regulatory obligation, not uh, for management spying, which are two different things. And I think what you're getting at here, Ewan, is the spying part, right? I mean, you talked about you shouldn't send something out if your boss can't be sitting next to you uh, looking at it and reading what you're writing, which is one thing. But then the sneakiness of tracking everything is kind of like you say, it's next level. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, look, I, I think, you know, the safe approach here, the smart thing to do as an employer, you know, look, first of all, you got to take stock of like, what do you need? What do you really need vis-a-vis your employees in terms of capturing this data? Right. I mean, just because you can monitor your employees, computer activity, it doesn't mean that you should, Um, You know, I think you also as an employer need to consider how monitoring might impact the overall business culture, if at all. Could it deter prospective employees if it gets out that everything, everything is so tightly monitored? You know, it's important that employers trust their employees and and that employees can trust their employers. And I understand that the idyllic employment relationship like that doesn't always exist. Um, But you want to try and make sure at least that you're establishing good principles um, and a good business relationship between the employer and employee from the get-go, right? So if an employee um, learns that this is happening or it's transparent to the employee so they're aware, what can they do about it? I mean, can they do anything about it? Is the employer kind of entitled to do as they wish on these things? Or is there some line somewhere? And I imagine this is also <laughs> depending on jurisdiction. Um, but I mean, in general, <laughs> is it is it is it something that any employee can fight at all? Well, yeah, I mean, sure. Stock answer, right? It all depends on all depends on where you live. Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, though, your employer should be advising you that they're using these sorts of monitoring techniques. You know, I, I would think that even if you were somewhere where there wasn't any sort of legal obligation to do so, it just makes good business sense that you give your employees some awareness that you're monitoring them. And I'm starting to see this interestingly, Cam, in a lot of employment agreements, a lot of new employment agreements, particularly with larger companies, larger tech companies. Um, where they are explicitly referencing in the employment agreement that, hey, we will be monitoring your computer activity. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. If you intend to use these sorts of programs, software, devices, what have you, um, then advise your employees that you're doing it in the employment agreement. Be clear about it. And, you know, if you're the employee and you come across something like that in an employment agreement, well, first of all, as always, as we always say on the show, sit down with a lawyer and have them Mm -hmm. speak to you about, you know, what sort of rights you have around these issues. And then also, Cam, I mean, get further information. So, you know, if if you know because it's in your employment agreement that they're monitoring your data or monitoring your computer, well, what does that mean? What are they monitoring, you know? How are they monitoring? When are they monitoring? How long are they storing your data, right? I mean, if they're capturing data that you had from a couple of years ago after you've left a company, I mean, is it still there? Um, is it is it being crunched for analytic purposes to, to determine how future employees might act? I mean, all of this stuff. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know that you're going to get the full nuts and bolts, obviously. You're not going to have an employer who's just going to say, ah, oh, hey, well, here you go. But you should, you should ask for some greater clarity in terms of, okay, I, I, I get it. You know, you're, there's going to be some monitoring. Can you give me some, 
some clarification in terms of what the parameters of that look like. Yeah, there's something about it that just seems sinister, hey, when it's at that level. Um, And you're right, it's probably difficult to get the employer to come clean on it if it's at this kind of level. Um, Because I do think it says something about the culture of the organization or the leadership if something like this um, is installed. And and I I do want to mention another thing to people because I don't think they realize this. But if you have an iPhone and you get your work email on an iPhone through a certificate, and I think iPhone users will know what I mean. It's often it's something you have to install through your settings to get sort of a corporate or enterprise email service on your phone. Um, if it's a you know if it's a, a a secure kind of organization that manages its data, but those those certificates basically give the employer carte blanche to see everything on your phone, and that's something I think a lot of people aren't aware of because they think you know you have to install this to get your work email, but it actually creates kind of a, a big sort of uh, hole through which the employer can crawl into your iPhone and and see what your bookmarks are and how long your phone calls are and you know what you've been searching on Google, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's something people need to be aware of for sure. And I don't think people are aware of how bad this has gotten. No, they really aren't, Cam. And I mean, you know what, even if you're, let's assume for a moment that you know, you're 100% certain that there is no such monitoring activity going on in your workplace. Fine. Um, That doesn't mean that you've got carte blanche to act like a complete moron in terms of what you're circulating in your email or instant messaging or, or otherwise, because whether there's any monitoring going on or not, the reality is that if your employment relationship goes sideways, or if the employer has some reason to believe that you've been engaging in some, you know, problematic conduct, then, you know, they have the ability to pull the, pull the emails if they want to allege cause for discharge, for example. Um, and if they were to subsequently sue you, well, then obviously all of your emails, all of that stuff becomes fair game in order to sort of make out a case. And, you know, there's incredibly sophisticated e-discovery software that, you know, we use in the legal industry and have for some time. It just keeps getting better and better and more sophisticated, particularly because of, you know, some of the AI and and targeted assistant assisted reviews you can conduct, conduct now, Cam. But I mean, effectively you can pull, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of emails and set parameters to find those needles in the haystack. So if they exist, they will be found now. The AI is getting, I mean, it's getting terrifyingly accurate. So just because you don't have these monitoring tools, um, if just because they're not being used in your workplace, that doesn't mean that you should not be very, very, very careful as an employee. That is actually kind of a good side issue. Um, you're right. There's a system called regular expressions that law firms often use as parameters to find these kinds of, of mentions. Um, and I was listening to a, law, a different law podcast the other day, in fact, that said it used to, you know, sometimes in the discovery process, you might get 20 boxes of documents that you would have to go through. <laughs> and now you can basically take them to somebody to scan them into a computer and get them OCR, optical character recognition, and you can search them. You can search them all at once for anything that you're looking for. And so the technology has gotten to that point where you're right. If it's down, if someone wrote it, 
um, it will be found. There's no more just missing it or, you know, something like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've used some of this software and it's, it's really quite impressive. So, you know, let's say you're loading a database of half a million documents. You then establish parameters for what you want the platform to search for. And the AI, the way that it works is it will present you with a document and say, okay, so is this sort of specific to issue one, you know, whatever the issue one is that you're looking for, is this relevant or not relevant? You identify it as not relevant. Well, that then informs the AI in terms of what it goes out and looks for in subsequent searches. So every time you tell the AI, yes, this document is relevant. No, this document is irrelevant. It gets more intelligent in terms of looking and more targeted in terms of what it finds such that you can really, really narrow the scope to find that needle in the haystack. But also, you know, you can reduce the amount of time spent. I mean, it used to be you'd have really, really linear reviews with these sorts of things, Cam, in the early days of sort of electronic discovery where, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have lawyers sitting in, a, in an office um, combing through bankers' boxes of documents, but they would be working through an electronic database where effectively you have to have human eyes on every single document to identify whether it's relevant or not. We don't need to do that anymore. We've really been able to sort of limit the, the scope of, of the number of documents that human eyes actually have to review um, and the AI can effectively do the rest. And the courts are, are on side with this because it obviously dramatically cuts the cost of, uh, of litigation, which is good for everybody, right? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. AI sort of takes this to to next level, and and indeed that's how AI works. I mean, it doesn't come off the the conveyor belt, you know, perfect. It uh, has to be taught, and um, you know, in some cases, it's taught over many many years, and it just keeps getting better and better and better, as you say. Um, and and yeah, that's that's going to be scary if you think that you can hide a document or hide an email um in the system um chances are it will will be found using these these tools so i mean this sounds kind of scary ewan for a lot of employees (laughs) i think i mean i'm kind of going back to to the question before about what what they can do about it and it sounds like not not very much other than sort of at least ask maybe the it department or the boss or whomever if this is happening, and I, I don't know if it's okay to ask that or if you recommend that because it almost maybe looks like you're trying to hide something. Um, well, yeah, I, I would recommend. I mean, I would recommend on some level making those inquiries. And again, if you're an employer, um, you know, you need to you need to advise your employees. Hey, we're monitoring your emails. Hey, we're monitoring your instant message. Hey, we use this. We use this tech. Um, are they going to get in? As I said earlier, to the nuts and bolts. I mean, hey, probably not. But they have to. They have to convey that to you on some level. That yes, we are using these tools. Um, and then you know, you as an employee have to make a decision about whether or not that's a working environment that you want to spend your time in. Is that the kind of company apparatus that? Um, you know, you're, you're comfortable, comfortable with, and you may not necessarily have a choice, right? I mean, a lot of people are taking jobs because they need jobs and they don't have the luxury of saying, no, I'm not going to take this because I don't want you monitoring my email. So I'm going to go elsewhere. Um, unfortunately that's, that's not always the case, right? Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on. 
and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. Okay, it's AstraZeneca time, dog. This, <laughs> all right, all right. This is one of the pharmaceutical companies that teamed up with Oxford University in the UK to uh, to develop a vaccine uh, for COVID nineteen. And you know, it's interesting because we do get a, a choice of which vaccine to get here in Hong Kong. And, you know, one is the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine and the other is Sinovac, the one, the one from China. And it's a little bit rare to be given a choice. I mean, most of the, 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 the best practice here is just to take whatever vaccine you've got because all of them work well. And, you know, for a while there was some talk of us having the AstraZeneca vaccine here and any time I brought it up, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, but that one I'm not comfortable with, or that one's not very good, or that one has some questions. And there's always been kind of this skepticism about it. And I thought, where is where is this coming from? And you and, you know, we talked off the air a little bit. You mentioned blood clots, which have come up as a subject related to this vaccine. But actually, they're, they're, I was surprised to learn that their PR issues actually started last year. Um, like, are you familiar with what's, what's happening with them? No, I mean, other than, uh, you know, the, the, the issues in Europe around the drug and, and blood, blood clots, but that, as I understand the, um, I mean, I mean, the percentage of, of patients that are suffering from these issues, um, are lower. Didn't, I, I think I saw a tweet, somebody, somebody sent out saying, you know, you have a better chance of developing a blood clot, taking birth control pills than you do taking the AstraZeneca covid mm-hmm. drug um so yeah some some very interesting literature out there around that particular issue that that's all i'm familiar with though yeah so what i didn't know was that the company actually was in quite some trouble maybe eight years ago or so around 2012 2013 um and they brought in a new ceo at that time uh who is from france pascal soriot is how it's written ewan it might be pronounced differently in french s-o-r-i-o-t is the family name okay I'm, I'm not going to take a stab okay. at it. <laughs> um, so anyway, he he joined then, and he's kind of a aggressive sort of kind of a cowboy CEO, the way he was sort of portrayed, and and he came out uh, at AstraZeneca and actually helped really turn turn the company around since then. So I, I want to just go into a little bit of the history on this vaccine and and what happened. So. If you remember, you and it was last March, March twelfth, I believe, when the NBA announced its suspension, which I feel like really kind of kicked off everything uh, in terms of the lockdown. And it was in April that um, the CEO of AstraZeneca promised that he would develop a vaccine with Oxford University. So a partnership was struck at that time to distribute three billion doses of this vaccine to the world for no profit and to developing countries. So it's a huge promise to make publicly. They did end up getting that vaccine done in November and they announced it just days after Pfizer announced its vaccine. You know, Pfizer said it was more than 90% effective. Its vaccine was more than 90% effective in countering the virus. AstraZeneca came out with a similar similar claim. However, a few days later, they admitted there's a key mistake in the dosage, which could impact the results. And actually, maybe it was between 60 and 90% effective. 
Oh, no. So the New York Times back then wrote, scientists and industry experts said the error and a series of other irregularities and omissions in the way AstraZeneca initially disclosed the data have eroded their confidence in the reliability of the results. End quote. So there's Mm. some skepticism around it. Yeah, I guess I guess so. I guess so. So this is the part that I was not familiar with is how this this sort of began. But then, you know, fast forward, you know, in just to kind of the last few weeks, you know, in Germany when they were approving these vaccines for use this year, um, they have a national vaccine committee and they they refused to approve it for people over 65 because they said they there wasn't enough data uh, and there weren't enough trials on older people. Um, and that decision was announced publicly. But again, that led to a lot of skepticism in Germany in general, because they were saying, don't take this yet if you're over 65. Now, they've since reversed that decision. Germany did then approve it. But people there had already, I mean, they'd already decided not to do it. They already felt skeptical about it. Then last week, the blood clots. So again, you you mentioned this, Ewan, there were reports of some patients developing blood clots after taking the vaccine. So, you know, Denmark, Iceland, Norway, Thailand, Bulgaria, Ireland, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Spain, all of those countries ended up suspending uh, the use of that vaccine, which is a big deal. And some of them said that they're just going to wait until the EU pharmaceutical regulator gives gives the green light. So that's a huge blow for AstraZeneca. No question. But, you know, that's when they really turned around and did a PR push as best they can. You know, they did come out, one of their spokespersons said, you know, in a review of 17 million people in the UK and Europe who received the vaccine, you know, they found fewer than 40 developed blood clots. So 40 out of 17 million. And they said, quote, even lower than you'd expect to find in the general population, end quote. So interesting point. Well, yeah, 40 and 17 million. I mean, it's very low. (laughs) Yeah. So. And then the spokesperson for AstraZeneca said, and this is all a quote here, Yuan, an analysis of our safety data of more than 10 million records has shown no evidence of an increased risk of pulmonary embolism or deep vein thrombosis in any defined age group, gender, batch, or in any particular country. In fact, the observed number of these types of events are significantly lower in those vaccinated than what would be expected among the general population, end quote. Okay, great. So we're good to go, right? Last week, uh, yeah, the European regulator gave the green lights, calling it safe and effective, and some of those countries have resumed. Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, you know, they're, they're back to administering the vaccine. However, that is okay. Uh, they're back in business, but there's still, you know, skepticism about this vaccine that's not going away. Um, in particular, in Germany, a majority there don't feel comfortable taking that vaccine. And I think this is really emblematic of a loss of trust. And you and we said on this show many times that trust is so important to your business. And I think, you know, what has happened to AstraZeneca here, uh, you know, is really symbolic of what happens when you lose that trust. Right. But I mean, I mean, I, I sort of get it if, if you're sort of to look at the cumulative effect going all the way back to last year. But I mean, I don't, think i mean well and let me ask you i mean do you really think that this is reflective of a cumulative effect from the consumer's perspective um or rather just that they've read a number of articles about blood clots and people are scared of blood clots 
Um, because I would think, you know, you would almost want to release an ad campaign that throws that number of 40, 17 million. I mean, I understand it's not something you necessarily want to draw attention to, but maybe they should be drawing attention to the fact that only 40 and 17 million, because it seems insane that anybody based on that kind of evidence would conclude that, no, 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 this is really unsafe and I don't feel comfortable taking it. You know, the reason why this is such a problem is, is you're, you're, you're right. Actually, I mean, there are studies now and a lot of people have come out, you know, in the healthcare regulators of various countries saying that this, there's nothing wrong with this vaccine. It's perfectly safe, you know, but it kind of doesn't matter. And, 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 you know, we talk about this inside the company I work for and other clients that I've dealt with in the past is it, it doesn't really matter what the facts are. A lot of the time, if there's skepticism, it can linger and, and presenting evidence to the contrary isn't going to help very much if that skepticism is there. And this is so hard to come back from. And it's why it's so important not to lose the trust in the first place, because you're right. I do think most people probably read, uh, you know, an article about a blood clot or blood clots popping up. And, and it just, it's not in context. It's not with any, you know, facts with it. And it alarms the public. And, it's really unfortunate because this is this is a health emergency in many ways with COVID-19. Like it's critical that people get vaccinated if we want to kind of fight back against COVID-19. But but misinformation can have a really detrimental effect to this. And I, you know, I do think that it's not entirely unrelated from just general mistrust of companies and governments these days. I mean, we've seen you know, a big increase or a decrease rather in the amount of trust that people have in authorities of all kinds, um, you know, especially in the United States, but not just there. And um, I think because these vaccines were rushed uh, and they, because the testing period was compressed in many cases that people were skeptical to begin with. And then, you know, negative news comes out like for AstraZeneca here, and it just sort of adds on to that skepticism uh, and people choose not to not to take it or that they don't have faith in it. But I mean, that's where we are. And, and it's why it's so important when rolling out these programs or when have when announcing something that it's done right, because even an inadvertent mistake like there was at the beginning here in terms of, you know, last November, the way AstraZeneca rolled it out. Those things can last a long time and have a real sort of fundamental and material impact to your bottom line. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, and also when they've got when when alternatives are readily available, right? And I think that's that's sort of the key here too, Cam, that it's not a matter of, oh, well, then I guess I just won't have a vaccine. I mean, there are alternative vaccines that consumers can can choose. And I mean, if if you have an option, if I mean if you're lucky enough, I mean, I'm I'm I think that's that's remarkable that uh you know, you're in a situation where you could eventually choose which vaccine you want, um, given given sort of our current circumstances here in Canada in terms of trying to get vaccinated. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess if given a choice and you've read about blood clots, blood clots and blood clots with this one drug um, and then the other vaccines you haven't read anything about, then presumably you're just naturally going to choose one of those other rightly or wrongly. Right. Right. Yeah. Given a choice. And, you know, it's, it is interesting. One article I read said 
in the case of Germany, there might be some nationalism involved because the Pfizer vaccine is German, where the AstraZeneca one is British. <laughs> so they, oh, they may be their way of sort of, yeah, looking down on, on the British vaccine. But I was looking through this, you and like I was going through this story and this chronology and thinking like, where, where did the breakdown happen? Like what, what, like why was there a mistake in the rollout? And, you know, I'm going to link to a couple of articles in the show notes on this, but a couple of things popped up. You know, one is this cooperation with Oxford University, which normally does not submit these kinds of, you know, medicines to any regulatory body for approval. So they didn't have much experience with that. And that was that was one problem. And then I think another one is, you know, the, the way that the CEO sort of announced what he was going to do. It was very high profile and it far exceeded sort of what other other uh, pharmaceutical companies had promised, which sets a high bar. And if you don't meet it, you know, it's going to be a fall. And both of those things, I mean, especially the promise was probably not necessary. That's kind of an own goal if you're not going to fulfill it. Um, but then on Oxford, knowing that, um, that they're not, you know, familiar with this part of the process in developing a vaccine, um, you know, there should have been a little bit of extra care and attention to that. Um, so I think those two areas probably contributed to this. But but in the end, I mean, this is why companies have to be, you know, really accurate in their communications, because sometimes you think, oh, well, these are small mistakes or, you know, we, we just missed this one point here. Like it's not a big deal, but to the public, it might be a big deal. And the media might frame it in a way that makes it a big deal. And you have no control over that. So you better just get it right the first time. <laughs> that's the, that's the lesson. Right. This also, <laughs> this also just seems rather bizarre given the state of the pharmaceutical industry in the United States in particular. Right. And I'm sure you're familiar with those commercials, Cameron, you know, they've got people running through a, a beautiful meadow <laughs> on a sunny day and it's, it happens to be a commercial for some random drug. And then while this is going on, they have some individuals as side effects may include blah, 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 blah. That takes up effectively the last 15 seconds of the commercial on account of, you know, a legal obligation to sort of disclose any and every possible side effect. Um, but this is the nature of the pharmaceutical industry. Of course, there are potential risks and side effects of taking any and every drug that we uh, we decide to ingest for whatever purpose. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is this is um, this is a learning case, too. I should mention you and just before we sign off here, I actually uh, registered for the vaccine. I don't think I've told you that. No, but we have. Um, no. This also ran really smoothly here. You know, website has been set up. And so I popped onto the site and you can select the vaccine that you like. So I, like I mentioned, we could choose between the Pfizer BioNTech one or the Sinovac. I selected the Pfizer one. And <laughs> then you set up, I mean, again, the sports centers and stuff have been turned into vaccination sites. So you just book a time. And so I got 830 in the morning on April 1st, April Fool's Day. So I will go in on that morning, get my first shot. And then the second one is on April 22nd and, uh, and then I will be done. So yeah, I was kind of impressed. A lot of the people I know have already registered for the shot here. We're coming up to something like 600,000 people already in Hong Kong have been vaccinated and we've got a population of around 7 million. Uh, so I think it's not going to be too long before, you know, a majority of people in Hong Kong are vaccinated. And I guess that's a good sign. So you're done by the end of April. You're, you're both shots done by done. the end of April. Yeah. 
Uh, along with most other people. Yeah. A lot of my friends have already had one shot and they're just waiting for their second. So yeah, this is happening quick. Hey, hey, well, wonderful. That's, that's, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that for you. That's great. There are some limitations. It's the vaccine is for people 30 years old and older at this point. So only those in their twenties or younger have to wait still, but I mean, 30 and up is a huge chunk of the population. So, um, yeah, that, that should be pretty good. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR and Law Podcast. What have you got, dog? Cameron, Cameron, I'm talking about, I've been listening to this record a lot. Cassandra Jenkins is the name of the artist. Okay. It's a, like a record called An Overview on Phenomenal Nature. And, you know, this album came out in late February, and I've been listening to it a lot. It has just sort of a, just kind of a, a lovely sort of wonderful atmospheric vibe to kind of put on in, in the background. I don't know. I found it really soothing over the last few weeks. There's um, her voice, which is great. And then, you know, there's piano and some saxophone. And, um, but I actually wanted to talk about one of the specific songs on the record cam. Mm-hmm. And that's a song. It's really kind of the album centerpiece. It's a song called hard drive. And I think it has to be one of the best songs I've heard this year so far. Really? It's really just an incredible track. It really takes you on a journey. At first, it's kind of somewhat jarring as uh, Cassandra Jenkins effectively talks throughout the song, almost like she's reading diary entries. She kind of Mm -hmm. tells a series of a series of stories um, while the music plays in the background, but on repeated listens, the themes, they really start, they start to kind of develop this cohesion and everything comes together and it's just amazing. It's just a fantastic way to spend five minutes and 27 seconds. And I think what really sort of put it really sort of just kind of clinched the whole thing for me is I finally sat down and watched the music video. Um, oh, really? Which is also just wonderful and lovely. And it it sort of helped bring, you know, you know, sometimes when you're listening to a song and you're sort of subconsciously aware of the lyrics around you, but you're not, you're, you're yeah. not processing the way that you probably should. Mm-hmm. But when you put a visual to it, it all of a sudden sort of comes together for you. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's kind of what happened to me with this song. So I, so you I put a link in the show notes. This, Sorry, go ahead. This is kind of atmospheric, you said? Or like, how would you classify it? Yeah, it's so I mean, she's a she's sort of a singer songwriter, but her 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 band is I would say it's kind of I don't know. Um, how would I describe it? It's sort of a kind of a, a folky sort of soft rock kind of I hate the word soft rock. Yeah. But maybe that's sort of most <laughs> I'm thinking most, like the most adult accurate contemporary. description. It's not it's not at all. It's not adult contemporary. Not at all. But yeah, I mean, in terms of instrumentation, you've got this lovely, lovely saxophone that's kind of going on in the back. And that also doesn't help in the context of <laughs> yeah. soft rock. I'm not doing a good job selling this camp. Saxophone, just watch, soft look, just, rock. Here's okay. the thing. <laughs> well, well, I, I put a link to the video on YouTube. It's five minutes and 27 seconds of your life. Just watch, watch the video. And again, it, it's a little jarring right off the start because she's just 
telling the story um, for about 30 seconds before the music kicks in. But the music just gradually grows and evolves throughout the entire song. And it's really, it's just something, Ken. Just, cool. just watch it. I like your recommendations. And because I am going to be working from home this week, this is something I'm going to throw on while I'm here. What do you got? I have Alan versus Pharaoh. The oh, you watched it, huh? Documentary uh, with Woody Allen versus the, the Mia Farrow and, and, and her family uh, over the accusations that Allen uh, molested his adopted daughter, Dylan. Yeah, I watched all four parts. It's sometimes quite difficult to watch, actually. There's a lot of home video footage. I know that's gotten a lot of attention in the media. You know, real, real footage from 1991, 1992, um, you know, when Alan was around the family a lot. And um, there's a lot of interviews uh, in the documentary. I mean, clearly it is not flattering to Woody Allen at all. And I have read a few articles that claim it left out some some important facts and points of view. Um, It's hard for me to say, obviously, because I haven't followed this case super closely over the years. But it's um it's it's an uncomfortable but I feel like in many ways necessary watch, uh, and I think I think the filmmakers do a good job of sort of bringing it into a contemporary context of Me Too uh, and some other movements and um, yeah I, I I think it is worth I think it is worth watching um, you know whether you agree with it or not or think it's um, propagandistic or not. I, I still do think it's a, an important, important docu-series. So it's four parts. It's HBO, I believe. It's on HBO Max here. And I think it's on Netflix in some countries. So you might want to check that because it's different country by country. But um, HBO, I believe, in North America. Yeah, it's HBO. Well, it's HBO, at least in Canada. So um, I haven't had a chance to watch it. I certainly intend to. Yeah. Okay. So... So you're 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 giving it a thumbs up. It's yeah, worth, it's worth a watch. Yep, I, I'm giving it a thumbs up uh, only because the, the 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 subject matter is important, and I think you know it's something that we should all be much more aware of. And also, you know, there's a big section in there that looks at the support Woody Allen has gotten over the years uh, from famous people who just look past these allegations, uh, and that's kind of where there's a a bit of a parallel with the Me Too movement, but. You know, fortunately, even that has kind of evolved and a lot of people come out to say they're not going to work with Alan again. So uh, it's interesting to see the culture change almost in real time as you as you as you as you watch it. Yeah, absolutely. I have. That has been kind of an interesting shift around his work there. There were a whole slew of celebrities that sort of stood by him or remained quiet. um, And that that has definitely changed over the last five years in particular. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Ewan, as we bring this one to a close, any messages, any sign-offs, anything you want to mention before we wrap up? No, I don't. I did nothing. As I said, I'm, I'm just happy you're you're getting vaccinated, Cameron. Um, right. I, I wish people in my country uh, under the age of 80, because I think that's about where we're at now in uh, in our vaccine rounds could could be so lucky so i uh, just want to step on an airplane and when i do i'm going to order a big glass of champagne and then i'm going to throw it back and order another <laughs> oh. that's it hey that, that's what you're longing that's your what you're longing to do i want to get vaccinated so i can drink champagne on an airplane <laughs> oh i can't wait little victory stock little victories 
All right. Fair All enough. Right. Thank Each you. Their own. Thank you for joining us again this week. Episode 48. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a month away from uh, one year of doing this show, which is amazing. Um, you can subscribe to the PR and Law podcast in your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. Um, and you can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newsletter, prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 